It is so wonderful to be able to gather as the church of our Lord. I recognize in the midst of so many things that the world has to offer, and, and yet this assembly of people has chosen tonight to elevate that to such a priority that despite all the other things that one might have done, you chose to be here. You chose to assemble at this place at this time and to do so in the interest of worshiping the great God who made us and who we have the opportunity to serve tonight. These songs in which we've just sung, what powerful messages they presented, the prayer in which we just joined collectively together again, how wonderful it was. And so tonight with your Bible in hand, Let's turn and give some thought to a lesson I've entitled, The Vow of a Nazarite. We'll learn along the way several aspects and features about vows in general as it relates to the, to the biblical presentation. But we'll also, of course, lay a particular emphasis on the Nazarite vow at the proper time in our lesson. The introduction to this lesson is perhaps a little bit lengthier than some of the introductions which I like to use, but I thought it might well be appropriate to do that, at least on this occasion. A vow. Likely, if you and I were to make a, a question, so what is a vow? I suspect we could make a definition which would not at all be inappropriate and likely would have a lot of powerful ideas within it. But not only would a vow, at least in that regard, be worthy of some thought, but what about the number of times that the Bible makes reference to this? Is it rare? Is it perhaps more common than we might have thought? You'll note near the top of that slide, one of the things I suppose that never ceases to be a rather amazing thing is that the Bible was written a long, long time ago from our perspective and it was written in a part of the world that has nothing to do in many ways with where we live. Their culture was different. The way they went about doing things was different. The particulars of their life was so very different than ours. And yet, the truth from God was presented to them and preserved for us. And thus, the issues that they faced, the particular ways that they went about doing things, spoke a great deal to the same kinds of issues you and I face. It may be that when you and I read then some things we read in the Bible, some of the descriptions that we see are quite often very foreign to us, and yet we know that it was meaningful. Perhaps the same thing could be said of a vow. I suspect that it's often the case we give our word to somebody. We, we promise or affirm that we will do something. And that's certainly a noble idea. But that still isn't exactly the same as these vows that we read about in the Bible. And yet, those vows have within it truths that can be very interesting and very meaningful. As far as the number of times, look near the bottom of that slide if you would. Ninety-three times in the Bible, we find a direct reference to the reality of a vow. And of that number, all of them but three are in the Old Testament. So clearly we begin to see rather directly that the Old Testament seemingly had more to say in that day and time about it. But it is not at all to say that the New Testament is silent upon it. As far as making a vow and as far as what God expected relative to it, will be the subject of our discussion tonight, particularly as it relates to the Nazarite vow. But let's begin in somewhat a degree of earnestness with some general information. 
information about the necessity, I should say, the choice of a vow, and what was involved in it. On that slide, as I've already invited you to notice, the word vow most often occurs in the Old Testament. But you might be interested to observe that it appeared to have been used in two rather widely distinct ways. First of all, in Leviticus 7.16, we read about a vial that, quite frankly, was an offering. And so, in some translations, it's actually translated as a votive offering. In other words, this person would offer to God a sacrifice, which, quite frankly, was translated by the word vial in the King James translation. I suspect that when you and I think of the word vial, that's not what we had in mind. But it is somewhat interesting to notice it involved in that instance a direct offering in consideration to what God had said He wanted. Well, I wonder if some of what's connected to the other kind of a vial might also at least have some of those ideas contained within it. As far as the second observation, which again occurs about a third of the way down that slide, the vow that you and I most often consider was an oath made to God. And in that way, we should perhaps note this, the vow was never made between human beings. That is to say, you didn't make a vow with somebody else. You might give them your word you would do something, and you might testify that you would do something either with them or for them. But as the word vow was utilized, it was not that idea. It was, again, a matter of direct connection, if you please, an oath directed to God. When you give thought to the oath, or at least that aspect of a vow, might we quickly observe then that the oath, this particular vow that we're discussing, it involved actions. It was not merely words that one spoke. It was not merely a course of intent that one had in mind. The particular references that we shall shortly see made observation of the fact that there were actions, there were particular activities that went along with this vow. It is with that stated. You might now take note that though that world is quite often regarded as a patriarchal one, or at least it was masculine-directed, it was true a woman could make a vow just as well as a man could. Now, that alone speaks a great deal about what was involved in this, doesn't it? It wasn't reserved for just the men. A woman could make a vow. In fact, Brother Dennis read about that a moment ago from Numbers chapter 6. At this point, as we revisit Numbers chapter 6, with regard to the Nazarite vow, notice carefully what is said. In verse number 2, when either a man or a woman shall separate themselves to vow a vow of a Nazarite. Now, in this particular connection, we can easily thus see that the God of heaven affirmed that a woman as well as a man could make this matter binding him or herself to God by virtue of this vow of a Nazarite. Now, we'll find in other references at a moment that that was also true of some of, of the other vows. It wasn't just restricted to the male but isn't it fair and very quick to say this? If a person made one of these vows, if you bound yourself in light of this profession toward God in this way, as I've asked you to notice, 
God expected you to keep it. He expected the person to be faithful and devoted to the vow that had been pronounced. To say it that way is to bring us to verses like this. Numbers chapter 30, verse number 2. Later in this same book, listen to the strength of the wording of this passage. If a man vow a vow unto the Lord, or swear an oath to bind his soul with a bond, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceedeth out of his mouth. So God, through Moses, reminded the children of Israel that when you give consideration to this vow, make sure that you have thought about it before you make it. Don't you enter into a vow lightly. Don't you enter into it flippantly. Don't you enter into it not understanding what's behind it and what God expects because you can't get into it and say, Oh, well, I didn't realize this. I didn't understand that that's what was involved. That would not have been acceptable. Later on, that concept is amplified in verses such as Ecclesiastes 5, verses 4 and 5. In that place, though centuries later it was written, even Solomon again reminded one and all, when you vow, vow unto God, make sure you keep it. Now you and I will certainly draw some lessons from that a bit later in our lesson tonight. But already aren't we seeing what an interesting matter these vows in fact were. One last thing on that particular slide is this. Based on Deuteronomy 23, verses 22 and 23, we notice that God didn't command a person to take a vow. It was left as a voluntary decision, a choice that each person could well make. But in that light, God did expect you to be faithful to it if you chose to take it. If you chose thus to enter into this arrangement, God expected you to keep it. At this point, what will be some additional pieces of general information that could be of benefit to us? First of all, we mentioned earlier that actions were involved. And could I be quick to say, it would appear based on the references of the Old Testament that these vows might involve any number of things. They could involve even one's self. That is to say, you could make a vow in which perhaps you made an agreement and a profession to God that I will do this or that in service to you. Maybe it was something connected to the tabernacle. Maybe it was something connected later to the temple. Maybe it was something connected to personal devotion in one's life. Maybe it was connected to various sacrifices. That one, being different from those God commanded, was a voluntary choice involved in your vow. But there also are verses which indicate it could be yourself. God, I will devote myself to you as a faithful servant. And there are various instances in which periods of time were involved. So you might say, in an interest of encouraging my greater faithfulness for one month, I will do this every day in service to you. Maybe you could say for six months, I will do this. Or you might say, I will not do that. Now clearly, the degree to which one would choose to make this vow was again something that one would not do lightly. The last three things on that slide would then be an interesting reflection on some of these thoughts. 
the vow placed an issue of high responsibility. I would be quick to say the passages that we do have do not indicate that you could make a rather flimsy vow. God would not have been pleased with it. So in other words, one could not say, God, for one month I'll comb my hair every day. That wouldn't have been much of a vow. You're likely going to do that already. It would not have been any sacrifice whatsoever. But to bind one's soul in service to God, one would have, in essence, selected or chosen something that would have involved sacrifice. I will withhold myself from this for one month, for three months, for six months, for a year, whatever period of time one might choose. Are we beginning to see that if one then entered into a vow, it was taken seriously and it was not a trivial issue? No wonder in that connection, in that light. There are some verses which indicate that vows were never ever to be entered in such a light fashion that they did not bring about a proper respectfulness to that which would be the being of God. Maybe I could say it this way. I mentioned a moment ago, you wouldn't take a vow to comb your hair or brush your teeth because you'd likely do that anyway. In other words, since God is not a little God, no vow could be a little vow. It had to be something sizable, something demanding sacrifice, something involved in a tremendous act of open consideration of dedication to God. One last thing then might be this, the Nazarite vow. Now, we've mentioned, and there were other kinds of vows, but what about the one that's called the Nazarite vow? I'm sure when you think of the word Nazarite, you think about the city of Nazareth. You think about a Nazarene. You think about other connections to the idea. But I would say in the light before us, maybe some additional details about this vow could be of value to us tonight. In Numbers chapter 6, we already have noted some of the ideas, but certainly there's more to be said, so may I direct your attention to them. Beginning in verse 2, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When either man or woman shall separate themselves to vow a vow of a Nazarite, to separate themselves unto the Lord we might well pause and note the first thing that should be clearly embedded in our thinking as it relates to the Nazarite vow. It was an issue of separation. This was to distinguish you to the rank and file Israelite. Now, there were no doubt very wholesome and godly Israelites who never took a Nazarite vow. But those who chose to take one, it should elevate you, separate you, and it should put you in a position to where your behavior is recognized as different. The vow of a Nazarite. Some of the things that would go along with it then were these. Verse 3. In this case, God did specify what was demanded, at least in many of the particulars. First, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. You can have no fruit of the vine at all. As you and I are now about to notice at the end of that verse, you couldn't even eat moist grapes. You couldn't go out to the grapevine and pick some grapes and eat them if you were a Nazarite. Notice it says dried. You couldn't eat raisins either. Those were not permitted 
for those that would be Nazarites. Now we begin to notice in the next verse, "...all the days of his separation shall he eat nothing that is made of the vine tree, from the kernels even to the husk." Now, as you give thought to God's specifics, at least in relation to this vial, He is demanding that they be separated, and here is one matter of presenting that separation. All fruit of the vine, you're to have nothing to do with it. Certainly that would indicate you not only could eat it, as you can well tell, that separation apparently in verse 4 would include growing them. That wasn't going to be allowed either. Verse number 5, All the days of his vow, of his separation, shall there no razor come upon his head. Well, now we learn something else that God detailed. For those that would choose to bind themselves in this vow, you weren't even allowed to cut your hair. Now there are some verses which even indicate that may have included facial hair. If so, you couldn't shave either. I might invite you to notice Verse 5 goes on to say this, "...in the which he separateth himself unto the Lord, he shall be holy." The prime directive relative to this separation was holiness. Stated like this, "...and shall let the locks of his hair of his head grow. All the days that he separateth himself unto the Lord, he shall come at no dead body." Now we've earlier noticed in other passages in, in Leviticus especially, that a corpse could make one ceremonially unclean. So, for instance, if someone passed away while they happened to be visiting your house, your house would be unclean for a period of time. And if you touched that corpse in the process of burial, you would be unclean for a period of time. In that connection, God thus decreed here that when it comes to that, you cannot, if a Nazarite, if you're a Nazarite, you cannot touch a dead body. So if your dad passes away, you can't have anything to do with burying him. If your mom passes away, or a brother, or a sister, you cannot be involved in that if you happen to be in the vial. Now that would have been very meaningful. Consider what that would have suggested. Though I love my parents, or my wife, or my husband, or even my children, I do love God more. And this vow is an indication of my devotion to Him. And in that sense, even if this were to happen, as much as I might wish otherwise to do so, I will maintain my vow first. Let's read on. Verse 7, He shall not make himself unclean for his father, or his mother, for his brother, or his sister, when they die because the consecration of his God is upon his head. All the days of his separation he is holy unto the Lord. If any man die very suddenly by him, and he hath defiled the head of his consecration, then he shall shave his head of the day of his cleansing. On the seventh day he shall shave it. And on the eighth day he shall bring two turtles or two young pigeons to the priest, to the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, and the priest shall offer the one for a sin offering, and the other for a burnt offering, and make an atonement for him, for that he sinned by the dead, and shall hallow his head that same day. And he shall consecrate unto the Lord the days of his separation, and shall bring a lamb of the first year for a trespass offering. But the days that were before shall be lost, 
because his separation was defiled. Did you know what happened? So if this individual, in the course of his Nazarite vow, maybe that person does pass away very near to him, and maybe even accidentally he comes in contact with that body. God said, all the days of the vow will have to be redone. You've got to start it over. That period of time, you see, is such that you fell into sin, though it wasn't intentional, perhaps. Are we gaining a feeling as to God's demand relative to the Nazarite vow? It was a very interesting thing, wasn't it? One more time, might we remember, it involved holiness, it involved separation. I wonder how many typical Israelites would choose to become a Nazarite. I would have to suspect that it was a relatively small number. The references that we do have would seemingly indicate the number was small, but we cannot be all that definite. But at the bottom, I would invite you to notice the references we do have are presented in a very interesting light. Could I call to your attention Lamentations 4-7? As the God of heaven spoke about the Nazarites, I think the language is very sweet. And the language is also very telling. Allow me to read that as it described the Nazarites and the way in which God perceived them. As you give thought to the verse, again, keep in mind Jerusalem has just been destroyed. Jer- Jeremiah has watched over it. And many of God's people had been taken off captive. And as that happened, Jeremiah laments over the current state of the fallen Jerusalem. And here's what he said. Her Nazarites, that's Jerusalem's Nazarites, Israel's Nazarites, they were purer than snow. They were whiter than milk. They were more ruddy in body than rubies. Their polishing was of sapphire. Do you hear how God valued the Nazarites? These people have chosen to serve me. They have inconvenienced themselves. They have chosen to be distinct and different from so many around about them and in love to me and in great definitiveness, even publicly to me. They were purer than snow. Do you gain a feeling of their holiness, their separation, their lack of defilement? They were whiter than snow. I'm sorry, whiter than milk. The Bible often makes reference to being whiter than snow. As far as I know, this is one of the very few times likened to being whiter than milk. They were more ruddy in body than rubies. How special, how devoted. We all know how precious a ruby was back in that day and in many ways still today. And a sapphire as well, and yet God says they are more precious than any of those things. But what a verse of sadness it is to come to Amos 2 verse 12. Far later in the Old Testament, you have this sad reflection. But ye gave the Nazarites wine to drink. Would you think about that with me? We just read a moment ago from Numbers chapter 6. Nazarites couldn't drink wine. They couldn't eat raisins. They couldn't eat grapes. And God directly told the children of Israel, You have given the Nazarites wine to drink. 
do you get the impression with me that there were people in Israel who mocked the Nazarites? They made fun of them. Uh, look at what you're doing. I think I'm going to have some grape juice. Hmm, you can't have any, can you? And then they would give them some to taunt them and tease them and to insult them. And to even, you see, make their course in service more difficult. Isn't that sad? The Nazarites should have been some of the most highly regarded people in the entirety of Israel. And yet, many of the Israelites mocked them, taunted them, and made fun of them. And even gave them wine to drink to purposefully take away the character of the vial. That's sad. When a society comes to the point that they do not value those most directly connected in service to God, that society is in deep trouble. That society, hear me well, is in deep trouble. After looking at those things, would you then consider the following with me as we transition the slide and make four applications of the Nazarites? Now, may we be quick to say the New Testament does not describe the taking of a Nazarite vow today. But isn't it true that whatever was written aforetime was written for our learning? There are lessons in it that can benefit us, encourage us, and yea, present to us the truth that could be so meaningful to a proper service to God. First and foremost, let's start with this. Christianity is voluntary as well. We noted earlier, God didn't require Israelites to become Nazarites, but if those who did choose to do it, He did expect a great deal from them. And isn't that still true? God doesn't make anybody become a Christian. But to those who choose it, who make that great confession and are baptized into Christ, He does expect them to be faithful. He does expect them to live unhypocritically. He doesn't like it very much if we make a presentation on Sunday and then don't live like it on Monday. Do you remember the Lord chastising those in His day who would be hypocrites? We all remember Matthew chapter 23. Seven times in that chapter. Note again the number. Seven times. That number is often highlighted in the Bible as a number of perfection, a number of completeness. Seven times He told the Pharisees, You bunch of hypocrites. You preach good sermons, I suppose. But the first one who converts to your way, you make him twice more a child of hell than you are. Now that's strong language. These hypocrites, you see, they could perhaps stand in the street and play and pray long prayers. And they could use $5 words that made it sound so good. But their life wasn't truthful. Their life wasn't sanctified and holy. Their life wasn't separated. In fact, on Matthew 16, Jesus told those of His day, You hear well what they say, but don't you do what they do. Is that not hypocritical? God doesn't want us to live like that. He doesn't want us to be that way. Was it the church in Laodicea strongly condemned for being lukewarm? You made profession, I suppose, of being noteworthy and grand, but your life didn't reflect it. Lesson number one is clearly this one. You and I are reminded in the Word of God, choose you this day whom you'll serve. Joshua 24, 15. And when you and I have made the choice of Christianity, 
may we understand the great blessings that are available in light of it and serve the Lord with faithfulness, just like some of those of the day of the Nazarites. We realize it's going to be challenging. Society will not look favorably upon a dedicated Christian. We don't talk the way that they do. We don't honor the things they honor. The Christian does not uphold what they so often stand for. But that won't deter us. Lesson number two. We've already mentioned somewhat of it. But perhaps a bit of an elaboration would be in order. This matter of dedication to God. Remember, the whole idea connected to the Nazarite was separation to God. It's increasingly difficult, isn't it? to be a person separated unto God. Consider some of the verses in the New Testament that talk about the world in which we live. In James 4, verse 4, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. It's easy, I know to fall in love with this world because it affords conveniences and pleasantries, things that are certainly pleasurable. But yet we must never reach the point wherein we love this world more than we love God. And in many ways that clearly seems to have been a basic part of the Nazarite vow. A person, perhaps man or woman, has reached a point where I do not want to fall in love with this world and so for a year... I'm going to bind myself with an oath to be a Nazarite. And I will do that because it will allow me to maintain a separation from what I otherwise might come to love too much. I would simply offer there were three instances, it would seem in the Bible, where someone was a Nazarite for life. In which case, the person's parents, it seems, made the vow for them. Now that adds a complete different level of consideration, doesn't it? But you and I might remember, Samson appears to have been a Nazarite. Now you and I recall that Samson didn't always act very well. In fact, there were times he was a real scoundrel. That adds another consideration, doesn't it, to the strangeness with which he appears to have been a Nazarite. I say it that way because his parents in Judges 13 they appeared to have made a vow relative to their son Samson, even before he was born. What about John the Baptist's parents, Elizabeth and Zechariah, in Luke chapter 1? We notice here their little boy, who was yet to be born. But they too appeared to have made a vow on his behalf, connected to something like this. Maybe finally one could even make note of Samuel. But each of these seemingly brings to our mind the thought that sometimes maybe, and it's certainly a commendable idea, for a parent to want faithfulness in the life of their child so much that they would even go to the point of making a Nazarite vow in light of them and then to rear them that way. Today, of course, you and I realize that the primary thrust appears to have been a voluntary choice on the person's part. Those times when the parents made it seems to have been the exception and not the rule. But on that slide, isn't it true that think about our separation? 
Romans 12, beginning in verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world. But be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Paul instructed the Romans, did he not? Don't you be conformed to the world. Don't fit into the mold of the world, but instead, you be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The word under discussion relates strongly to metamorphosis. You be sufficiently distinct and changed that you do not fit the mold in conformation to the world. I say it that way because, as Paul thus would say it to those Romans, those same ideas in many ways strike a strong chord with us. One last thing about that one would perhaps take us to that issue of point number three. It has to do with things that defile. Now, we've already mentioned the world. Now, that's a very broad and very general description without doubt. But think of all the things that can come your way in mind that can distract us from service to God. Remember, the Nazarite vow was directed in such a way, I do not want to fall into those habits. I don't want to pursue those things. And I will thus voluntarily bind myself in this way to give me additional motivation not to do those other things. Sometimes in my life and yours, can't that be interesting and also helpful? And so in 2 Corinthians 6, verses 14 to 17, we find a reading in which we're commanded, Be not unequally yoked with unbelievers. And then in verse 17, Separate yourselves from, again, those influences which would otherwise be defiling. Come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord. Now those words are just as vital for me and you today as they ever were then. If there are things that take place in your life or mine, it's time to use good vision, recognize them, and to the extent we can, always try to remain distant from the forcefulness that they might bring. That might have to do with ways I might come to learn to talk, language that others around me frequently use, which I might have to work hard to make sure I don't fall into the habit of using it too. Or maybe it's ways of thinking. Maybe it's certain actions. Whatever it may well be. Our incentive should be keen just like the Nazarites was. For that reason, look at verses like these. 1 Peter 1.16 Be ye holy, for I am holy. The Nazarites, remember, the whole thrust of this was to arrive at a station of holiness. Remember, they were whiter than milk. They were pure. Isn't that what God wants us to be? Royal diadems and the sweetness of the crown of our Lord in the language of Revelation 19. That's a beautiful thought, isn't it? Maybe one final thought, and the lesson will be yours. It has to do with that text we noted in Amos 2. Though the Nazarites offered so much incentive, after all, they should have been great influences to the people around them. He or she's living like a Nazarite in purity and holiness. 
You know, that kind of reminds me, I've been doing some things I don't need to be doing. And rather than having that kind of rich influence, there were some people in Israel, as we noted earlier, taunting them and trying to get them to sin. How sad. But in many ways, something like that true of us, the world in many ways doesn't appreciate Christianity. We think on a level with which they're not comfortable. We act in ways that they do not understand. And the world doesn't like non-normality. It wants everybody to be just like them so that nobody can cast a finger at them. But yet the Christian's different and always will be. And so at the bottom of that slide, think about some particulars that could come your way in mind. Have you known of individuals who maybe make fun of what you stand for? or what you do not stand for. Others who may well choose to make fun of the language that you will not employ. I suppose that's often true in high school. I know we all can remember how mean high school can sometimes be. People who, in fact, behave and act in ways, and you certainly hope in time they'll understand how childish, how immature, and how inappropriate it can be. But yet the fact is, at that time in life, it seems to be the choice of many, but isn't it true? It can be a choice well beyond high school. Maybe on the job site, maybe in the community, maybe at the polling place, maybe in other ways. The things that you and I do are insulted. The things that you and I do are, quite frankly, made fun of. I would hope that just like a faithful Nazarite wouldn't have been deterred by those people. May you and I not be either. As far as we know, Ezekiel was not a Nazarite. In fact, it seems rather strongly that many of the things connected to what is stated in that book paint the fact he wasn't. But aren't you impressed how often he found himself encircled by people who made fun of him? And yet Ezekiel in strength would maintain the course of faithfulness to God even when his own wife passed away, even when on other occasions God would direct him to prophesy, and he would prophesy, and the prophecy was strong, and the people knew what he was saying. And they were ready many times to return to him and say very hurtful, damaging things, but Ezekiel just went on with his business. I hope you and I can do that. As we close this lesson tonight, we've at least reminded ourselves of some of the vows of the Old Testament, and in particular the Nazarite one. But as far as concluding the lesson, couldn't we say that those people were so honorable in that they voluntarily chose to do in service to God what He didn't absolutely command, but because they loved Him enough that they wanted to serve Him that fully. Do you and I love Him enough that we would want to serve Him that fully? I hope we do. Might you and I have been the Nazarites back then? Might me or we have been the ones who above all else would have chosen to bind ourselves with that vow so that we could be as close to God as we could possibly be? I hope that that motivation will be one that perhaps sets in our mind tonight this truth. If we're separated from Him, it is not His fault. 
it's mine or yours because I've chosen to do that which is displeasing in His sight. If you at one time were a faithful Christian, but as of tonight, you've allowed things to come into your life, and maybe it's happened rather slowly, maybe rather gradually, but maybe in the better moments of your vision you realize, I am not as I should be. I could be a better and more richer influence to many others, and they know the kind of person I have come to be. I want them to know I am not that person anymore. I want to repent. I want to come back to the faithful side of my Lord. And tonight, we would be delighted to assist you and help you. It would require, of course, repentance upon your part, confession on your part, but could I also say that we'd be delighted to pray in light of those things? It might be, though, that someone here is not a Christian. You have never yet made that decision to walk that way of life. May I insist, it is by far the best way to live. It's the life that has hope and the life that has promise. 1 John 2.25 says, This is the promise which He hath promised us, even eternal life. If you're not a Christian, you don't have it. You might be a fine person, and I suspect without doubt you are. But you need to be a faithful Christian. Tonight, we would love to make an observation of celebration as you express your belief in the Lord, repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized. Tonight, if we could be of help in that way, we would love to do it. If either of these things are the need of your life, this chosen song has been selected, won't you come while together we stand and sing?